0: I was interested to like, begin studying 1 Peter. 1 Peter, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it or who haven't maybe read it recently, 1 Peter is near the back of the Bible. It's called one of the um, uh, the epistles. is written by Peter the Apostle. And it was written to Christians in a remote part of uh, modern-day Turkey, or Asia Minor, as it was called in the first century. It was written to a uh, group of Christians who were marginalized by society. It tells, and it talks about, in it, Peter talks about uh, how to understand our new identity in Jesus, how do we deal with suffering, how do we live between two worlds, between the kingdom of God and the world that we live in now, how do we relate to one another. talks about how slaves relate to masters, which is not an issue that we have as much here, maybe employers and bosses, maybe it's the closest thing we have. talks about how uh, husbands and wives relate to each other, about how generations, how the young and old relate to each other. But ultimately, it talks about how we follow Jesus when it's hard to follow him. When the culture around us doesn't like the gospel, it doesn't like what Jesus teaches, and how do we follow him faithfully in that situation? For me, I've been fascinated by First Peter. I remember in seminary, I did uh, a study, uh, one of my exegesis class. The whole class, all, all term, was around one short part of First Peter. But in part of that, we had to study the whole book. So it's always been a, an interesting uh, letter that Peter has written, but for various reasons. Uh, as I was begin studying this week, some people have talked about the, the letter that First Peter has written is, is a great uh, book or a great letter of the gospel. Like, everything that you need to know about Jesus is included in this letter. Granted, there's much more through the other letters, through the Gospels, through Acts, through the Old Testament to understand about Jesus, but kind of everything that you know, the basics are all here. Also, too, it's interesting because Peter is writing this letter to a group of Christians, um, in some ways, refugee Christians. At very least, a minority group living in what is now modern-day Turkey which is interesting that we begin this series uh, the same week that a pastor, a Christian pastor, was just released from Turkey. So it's interesting how this group of Christians in uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, Peter's writing a letter to them that they are living a refugee faith. Now, for the Christians of Asia Minor, following Jesus came with two things. First of all, it came with great joy and hope because they realized who Jesus was and what he had done for their life. But at the same time, it sounds like it was also the very reason why they received um, criticism, why they were pushed to the margins of their own society, why life was hard for them, was because they followed Jesus. It's interesting, in the letter we'll get into it more in the next few weeks, that they faced slander and malicious talk. Part of it was religious, Uh Asia Minor, the area that, that these Christians lived in, had all sorts of different religious beliefs. Uh, it was sort of a crossroads. They had ancient Near Eastern beliefs. So um, uh, all sorts of... Um, like Babylonian and, and Persian gods, but then also, too, Greece had ruled that area at one point, so they had Greek gods, they had Roman gods, they had tribal religion, they had uh, Jews who had been exiled from uh, Babylon and Persia had settled there at some point. There's all these different religious beliefs, all kind of in, these, in this area. But not only that, but there was also national uh, trouble that they faced because it was part of the Roman Empire or the frontier of the Roman Empire. Some people had allegiances to their tribes. Some had allegiances to older empires. Some had allegiance to the new empire of Rome. It's this mix, this, this um, melting pot of all sorts of different uh, beliefs and national um, commitments. And so not only did they face these issues, but they also faced... Uh, social ostracization, they were pushed to the outside of society. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really difficult. Like in our world, in our culture, uh, money is kind of your credit. You know, if you've got money, people will respect you, generally speaking, um, in our culture. You know, it's, if you've got money, you can still pretty much do anything you want. But in the ancient world, it was more your honor or your, your character. And so you can maybe use money to buy honor, but ultimately, honor was your credit score, so to speak. Well, in a, in a community where people don't honor you, life gets really hard. If they don't go to your business, or if they won't trade with you, or if they won't talk to you, or if they won't include you in their, in their uh, society, life gets really difficult. So it began to jeopardize these Christians. Not only was it hard for them to make a living, uh, not only did they face uh, criticism and, and uh, comments from people around them, but it was hard just to get by. It's interesting because for a long time, First Peter has been a, a neglected book in North America. It's hard for us to relate to it, or it has been hard for the church to relate to it. But it's interesting because in the persecuted church, in other parts of the world where Christians are persecuted for following Jesus, First Peter is one of the favorite books in places like Indonesia or China or the Middle East. First Peter speaks directly to what they are experiencing. But I've been thinking about it more. Increasingly, I am able to relate more to what Peter is speaking to these churches of Asia Minor. I can read my experiences in this book. Now, I think it's interesting because this book doesn't seem to be there's outright persecution. I don't think Christians in this, as Peter's writing to them here, I don't think that they're being locked up, um, put in prison, or killed for their faith yet. But life is difficult because they follow Jesus. I can relate to some of that. The looks that people give you, the ways they look at you and the comments they make when they find out that you follow Jesus or, like me, they find out that you're a pastor, <laughs> the looks of incredulity and disbelief, sometimes disdain. I think the Christians, of uh, First Peter, know what this is like. It's interesting. I've been reading the commentary written by Karen, doc, actually Dr. Karen Job. She is a New Testament and Greek scholar who taught at Wheaton College, and I'm reading her commentary from Baker Exegetical uh, Series on the New Testament. And it's been interesting as she talks about her study of First Peter that wherever Christians, she says, wherever Christians are a minority, the message of First Peter takes on a renewed relevance. I wonder for us, you know, how would Jesus have me live? In the Kootenays, where my faith puts me on the outside. I mean, we are a minority here, a vast minority. Most people around us don't have the same beliefs that we have. Where uh, my commitment to faith, my commitment to Jesus, causes me to live differently. I have different ideas, different ideals, different beliefs different ideas of what I should do and what I shouldn't do and how that differs from my friends and neighbors around me. And because of that, it puts me on the outside. It puts me sometimes at odds with my neighbors. Sometimes they even say I'm closed-minded or bigot because of what I believe because I follow Jesus. Has anybody experienced that? Anybody heard that? I know that some of you have felt this. I'm wondering how do we faithfully Follow Jesus in our community. We start to wonder, is the condescension we face, people condescending to us or ridiculing us or criticizing us, is that normal? Is that really what it's supposed to be like? Maybe some of you might be asking, are we doing something wrong? Have we done it wrong? Or as Christian minorities, should we expect that we don't fit in? And actually we're not meant to. Or the fact that we're marginalized for our faith. Maybe we should begin to expect it. For a lot of years, for decades, maybe even uh, a century, Christianity has been the center of North American society. Well, it's not, at least here in the Kootenays anymore. So what do we do with this, right? How do we live faithfully? How do we keep following Jesus when most of our community around us does not? These are good questions. And thankfully, we are not the first ones to experience this. We are not the first ones to ask these questions. Actually, that's what Peter was writing to this church about. The early church asked this too. And so let's dig in to this text. So we are going to be working through the whole book of Peter, but we're going to start this morning with the very beginning and the very end. Think of it like the envelope to the letter we just received. We're going to look at the beginning and the end. So if you would open up your Bible to First Peter chapter 1. It's near the back. Or if you want to, if it's easier, you can look at it here in your bulletin. So this is what Peter writes to the church. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then the the very end of the letter says this. Peter closes with this. He says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So, let's dig into this. So we're going to begin with the very beginning. So this says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the Peter of the Gospels, the Peter that we know uh, from the Gospels, from the good news of Jesus uh, it's interesting because Peter, as you see, I mean, many of us know this, some of you might not, but Peter actually began his career as a fisherman. Uh, Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he says, Come and follow me. And Peter responded and began following him. Peter has a reputation of being sort of a, a rough neck fisherman, sort of one of those rough guys. Um, it's interesting, though, because in the gospel, he's actually, sort of, he has moments where he's pretty perceptive. Um, after Jesus, I mean, he'd been with Jesus for a while, and Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he says, uh, he asked them, you know, who do people say I am? And they give these answers like John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And then he asked them, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. He sees it. He realizes it. But then, in true Peter form, When Jesus says, yes, and the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die, and then on the third day be raised again, Peter says, no, Lord, may it never be. He doesn't really understand yet. And actually, it's so um, troubling that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So, Peter has this great high, and then a few moments later, this great low. So he's this guy, people have talked about him as being uh, all over the place, a bit capricious. very emotional, um, but faithful. That is until Jesus is arrested and he's taken to a trial near the end of the Gospels. Peter is asked three times, aren't you with this Jesus? And he denies Jesus three times. And then as we read at the end of John's Gospel, when uh, they're out fishing again, they've gone back to their life and they see Jesus on the shore, Peter, when he finds out, when he realizes it, that Jesus, he ju- he takes off his robe, jumps in the water, and swims to meet him. And it's there, at that moment, uh, that morning, that Jesus re, uh, restores Peter. He asks him, "Do you love me?" three times, correlating to the three times that Jesus, or sorry, that Peter had denied Jesus. So we see this kind of checkered career of Peter in the very beginning. Then, as you read about Peter in Acts. Uh, things We see him growing in faith, where he's walking and teaching, uh, enduring imprisonment. Also, too, we see where Peter, where God gives him a dream of this sheet coming down from heaven and all these different types of animals, and God says, kill and eat. Basically saying the old covenant, that way has changed. The new covenant is here. Jesus has changed everything. You no longer are separated from the Gentiles by the food you eat. And Peter ends up going to a man, his name is Cornelius, and Cornelius comes to faith in Jesus. Peter baptizes the whole house. He grows a lot, as we see in Scripture. And then we see the Peter of this letter, this letter of 1 Peter, and we see, I think, an older Peter, who is wiser, who has been following Jesus for a lot of years now, who knows what it's like to follow him, especially when it's difficult. So we have this, we have Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to say here, apostle, um, it's not a word we use very much anymore. Apostle, uh, by Peter's day, by the time Peter is writing this letter, it's something a bit more specific than just a sent one. Um, That's literally what it means in Greek, is one who is sent. And so, in a sense, he is sent by Jesus, but they they reserved the word apostle for people who actually lived and were directly taught by Jesus. So, the 12 disciples... Of them, except for Judas, the eleven became apostles. They had directly witnessed Jesus teaching and his preaching, and they lived with him. And so they became the apostles. All right. Um, So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. So elect here is the, uh, in Greek, it's electois, but basically it means those who are purposely chosen those who are selected. This comes from, uh, actually, this word is used uh, quite a bit throughout the Greek version of the Old Testament, referring to God's people, that they were chosen. The people of Israel were chosen by God, not because of some great thing that they had done, but actually because of God's faithfulness. Actually, sometimes almost because they were so small and insignificant in the world, God chose them to show how mighty he was. So like the people of the Old Testament, the people of Israel who were chosen by God, Peter is saying that you, Christians, you are chosen people as well. All right, so God's elect and exiles. The word here is paradidemos, which kind of just means like a foreigner. It's a foreigner living in a new land without papers, uh, without citizenship. You're at the will. Uh, You don't have the same rights as everyone else. He's saying that you are foreigners. Um, and which is really complicated when you start bumping up against tribalism. And there was tribalism in the day. Maybe not um, like what we think of tribalism. We often think of, of very um, archaic people. But tribalism even has effects even today. We see it. It's a, it's a deep-rooted distrust of people who are different from us, people from the outside. We face tribalism, even us. Occasionally we are guilty of tribalism here. Uh, The way we build, oftentimes in tribalism, the way you build group cohesion is by joining together against people on the outside. Which feels really good if you're on the inside, but it's really horrible if you're not, when you're on the outside. And so here, Peter is calling them uh, foreigners because they were in a land where they were on the outside. They were not part of the tribes. They were not part of the cities where they had settled. The people there had different religious beliefs, different national uh, convictions. They were on the outside. But that's not totally new for the people of God. Actually, as you look through the Old Testament, you see a pretty constant theme of foreigners. Foreigners living in a new land. I mean, think about Abraham. God called him out of the land of Ur, and he moved into Israel to start God's people there. Or think about Moses, who was a Jew who was raised in, in Egypt, in the Egyptian court, Uh, Of Pharaoh, and then led God's people out of Egypt back into their own land. Or think about Daniel, who was a prophet uh, who lived uh, around the year uh, 500 B.C., who was taken out of Israel. He was a, uh, a young man, taken out of exile to Babylon, where he was a foreigner in a foreign land. But then think about this. Think about Jesus as the ultimate foreigner. Here he is, son of God, living with God in heaven. And he comes down to live among us, a foreigner in a foreign land. God actually put on flesh to live among us. Being a foreigner has deep roots in Scripture and in the people of God. You with me? Okay. So I think some of us have experienced this too. Um, Raise your hand if you were born and raised in the Kootenays. Sorry, you guys might just have to try and imagine what I'm going to talk about here for a minute, okay? But it's interesting, just a few hands, the rest of us have moved here from somewhere else. And it's, it's, for those of you who maybe grew up in just another part of B.C., maybe the change is a bit less. For those of you who maybe grew up in a different province or maybe from the prairies, moving here to the Kootenays is culture shock. It's interesting for me, I came from the U.S., and I remember when Tracy and I, when we moved to Vancouver so I could begin seminary, I thought, you know, it's going to be great. It's a different country. So there are some differences. It's kind of exciting. But essentially, it's a lot like where I grew up in Washington State. It's like North, northern, northern California or northern, you know, northern Washington. It was completely different. I mean, there were so many things that we had no idea how different it would be to live in a new culture. And Tracy and I had the advantage of speaking the language, looking like an indigenous Canadian. I mean, I I, I pretty much fit in uh, uh, pretty easily. Right. Maybe my hair's a bit too short. Yeah. Uh, At least for the cutenies. But I can tell you it was different being a foreigner in in a new country. And actually, just this summer, Tracy and I finally became citizens. We finally accomplished that. And, yeah, Thanks. And for, But for years, I mean, I wasn't super concerned about it, but it was always a thought in the back of my mind, I am not a citizen here. I don't have the same rights. And if something were to, be, to go wrong, I, I could be asked to leave this life that I have here. Being a foreigner in a new land is not all easy. As many of us have experienced that having moved here, different cultural values, different ways that people talk about things, even different words that they use. It's difficult being a foreigner. And so Peter writes this letter to this church of Asia Minor to encourage them to keep following Jesus. He's trying to encourage believers as they walk between two cultures, between their citizenship in the kingdom of God and their place in the world around them. Because we have a complete allegiance to Jesus, to his kingdom, That is our first alliance. And yet we still have a place. We have to live in the world around us, work and and talk with our neighbors to live here in the Kootenays. And so Peter is writing this letter to this church so that not only would they follow Jesus faithfully, but they would do their best to live in the world around them. Though we feel ostracized, in truth, all Christians are in a sense foreigners in a strange land. This culture is not our home. And it's true that most of us here are citizens of Canada, but above that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we pray and we hope for Christ's return and for his kingdom to come here to make things right. We are still foreigners here. Okay, so he says, to God's elect, exiles. You're thinking like, Jason, how long is it going to take if you're going to go word by word? Trust me, it'll speed up, but just I want to, one more thing about scattered here. The word behind scattered is the Greek word diaspora. Many of us have heard that word before, but it means like those who are dispersed. So he's speaking to the diaspora, to those who have been dispersed. And for, the, for Jewish people, that word had a special meaning. Diaspora were often people who had been taken out of Israel, taken into exile, into Babylon and then able to return. But also, as you read, like say in the book of Acts, you had people who were coming to the, feast of, or to the Passover feast or to the Feast of Weeks. They were coming from all over the Mediterranean. They were diaspora, dispersed people. And so Peter is referring to these Christians, and maybe many of them Jewish converts to Christianity, uh, Messianic Jews, calling them uh, dispersed people, diaspora. Because he's saying that they were dispersed, one, because they were uh, spiritual outcasts. Uh, it's interesting, as I've been reading and studying the background on this, some people think that the churches in Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey, some think that they slowly grew up over time. And we'll see a map here in a moment. Um, but Paul did quite a bit of his work in, in Asia Minor. Uh, like Remember, you like maybe heard the book Ephesians, Colossians. Those are in the area where we're talking about at least the southern part of it. So there were Christians who were there. And so some scholars for years have thought like it just slowly spread across uh, what is today modern Turkey. Um, but listening to Dr. Karen Jobs, the the scholar that I've been reading, uh, evangelical scholar, she was saying that actually she's wondering if maybe these are people who have either uh, voluntarily or were forced to leave the city of Rome and settled in Asia Minor. That was a common practice in the ancient world to try and build up settlements for the sake of the empire, to move the frontier further and further. But also, too, uh, in Rome, if, you were, uh, uh, if they didn't like you or they didn't like your people group, I think the Jews, uh, I can't remember, I think it was maybe six times they were expelled from Rome in the, in the first century. If they didn't like you or your people group, they would say, you're not welcome here anymore, get out. We don't care where you go, just go. So uh, Professor De- Jobs is wondering, you know, were these people expelled or were they just settlers from Rome, still foreigners in this Asia Minor? But it's interesting as you take all three categories together, chosen or elect, exiles, scattered. You take all these together and you get uh, a pretty clear connection to the Old Testament, to the people of God. These are common themes that happen throughout Scripture. Peter wants people to realize, listen to this, Realize who they are in light of Jesus so they know how to respond in light of the world around them. Listen to that again. Peter wants people to realize who they are in light of Jesus so they will know how to live in the world around them. So Peter is speaking to the church for this purpose. And he calls them, and he's referring to them as Christians, using a lot of the categories of the Old Testament, To help us see that as Christians, we have been grafted into the people of God. Like a branch on a tree, we've been been patched into it. The Jews who were a part of the church, they already knew that they were a part of the people of God. But for the Gentiles, those who didn't grow up Jewish, this was a new concept. To realize that that they have a new citizenship. That they are a new people. That they belong to God. Alright. So... These are the people that he's talking to throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Does everybody know exactly where those places are? Right? No. (laughs) So this is a map. This is a map of the first century. This is uh, essentially Turkey, modern-day Turkey right here on the um, east side of the Mediterranean, you know, Europe, Africa, Mediterranean. This is Turkey. All right. And so... um, just to talk briefly about it, Bithynia and Pontus, um, it's the northern area. They had a, a seaport, but very few towns. And by towns, I mean like five to 6,000 people, maybe 10,000 people. Maybe like the size of Nelson, okay? Those were cities in this day. The next, oh, sorry. We have Galatia right here through the center. Um Again, this has uh, had some importance militarily, but still pretty sparsely populated. Remote tribal groups, different religious groups. But also, if you notice here, this red line, this is actually Paul's third journey, but that red line is the road, is the, one of the main roads to take through southern, um, through southern Asia Minor. And so you can see the southern part probably had lots of different ideas, commerce, trade, economics. The northern part, there's like nothing up there. <laughs> so it's a remote part. Uh, So throughout here, you had Greek and Roman influence. In the north, not much. Or if you did, it was a mix of of Persian, Greek, Roman, tribal, all sorts of things mixed together. Then you had Cappadocia here, or Cappadocia, as some people refer to it. Again, this is mostly high desert. Like here's a mountain range right here. This is, uh, I looked on a Google Earth. Uh, It is, this whole area right here is all high desert. (laughs) like 4,000, 5,000 feet in brown. That's, that's what this area is like. So it's no wonder there were a lot of monasteries and famous monks that came from uh, Cappadocia Capito- and Galatia. Some of the like, famous church fathers were from this area because nobody lived there, so they were left alone to think and spend a lot of time in prayer. So that's uh, kind of what we're talking about. Uh, then one of the other areas is Asia. That's the red spot right over there. You'll notice some of these cities, Okay, from the book of Ephesians, here's Ephesus. From the book of Colossians, here's Colossae. Uh, for those of you who have read uh, Revelation, there's Smyrna, Pergamum, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, Laodicea. So this is an area that's pretty popular in Scripture. There were uh, more Christians uh, and churches in this area. All right. So that's one of the areas too. So you can see the the whole the kind of the basics that I wanted you guys to get from this is one of that's high desert. Um, on the map, there's like the coastal area is kind of green, but the rest of it is uh, hot and, and high. Uh, the main trading route is through the south, so that's where you're going to get a mix of cultures. The part above, not as much. Demographics, it was uh, numerous tribes, tons of different cultural beliefs, not a lot of Greek or Roman influence yet, and um, low population, like small-ish cities, you know, a few thousand people to maybe 10,000 people, and they were few and far between, Okay except for the the province of Asia. That's where a lot of the trade was. And it's on a coast, so lots of shipping, those sort of things. The whole area was sort of out of the way. Can anybody think of another place you might know of that's sort of like that? A place that's a little bit out of the way, rugged country, um, a mix of different religious beliefs and cultural beliefs all sort of swirled together in one little spot. Right, exactly, the Kootenays. I know, I kept thinking about that as I was studying this. Uh, you know, our main trade route, uh, uh, Trans-Canada Highway, number one. Like, I'm, like, I don't know if you've had anybody who said, like, oh yeah, we'd love to come visit you. you. know, We're traveling from across Alberta to BC to do some stuff. and like, People stop by and I think, have you seen it on a map yet? And then they look and they say, oh yeah, no, I don't think so. We won't be by. Right, we don't live on the main route. We live a little bit out of the way. Right. And yet this is the, one of the cradles, it's called, sometimes called the cradle of Christianity. Uh, some of the major councils, like the Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, that were happening three or four hundred years after this letter was written, uh, where major theological issues were discussed and decided, happened in this area. Some of the greatest church fathers, um, I don't need to get into them, but if you're interested I can talk with you more, but some of the greatest names of the early church came from this area. But it's interesting as you think about the role of backwater places in the ancient world, actually in the church. You know, we think about the role of this place. There was actually um, one uh, pastor said, you know, we are kind of lucky because we don't speak Greek very well. And so some of the heresies that swirl around the rest of the empire, we don't even understand or our people don't understand. And so we're able to stay closer to the, to the true gospel that we've heard. Or you think about how back, backwater places like this hold the gospel as it was given to them. It's interesting, in the ancient world, in around 400, 420 A.D., when the, when the Roman Empire collapsed, uh, there's actually a book written about it called How, how, Irish, or sorry, how the Irish Saved Christianity. It's a book about how the faith of the Irish, because they kept and wrote the scriptures and were sort of untouched by the collapse of Rome, they were able to keep sharing and writing and copying those scriptures and sharing them throughout the church. But it was that small, remote island of Ireland that helped the church stay faithful to the true gospel. And so I say that for us. You know, I mean, it can be sometimes a little bit discouraging, especially when you're trying to travel anywhere out of the Kootenays, how difficult it can be. But at the same time, who knows how God might use us to stay faithful to the gospel and to encourage the rest of the church one day. Okay. So... So he says to those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. It's going to move a bit faster here. Um, We're going to get into the theology of the letter uh, as we work through it. But this is just some important stuff here, where he says, you know, according to the foreknowledge of God. So he means God the Father, Yahweh, and this is saying that God isn't just aware that we are here, that we are Christians, that we are following, but actually God already knew that we have been selected, that we are here on purpose okay? God's not surprised by the troubles we face because we follow Jesus. It says, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, this is the leading and guiding and the convicting of the Spirit in our lives. This is God's Spirit in us and guiding us. And it says here, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And some of you might be thinking, what? Sprinkled with blood? What does that mean? Where does that come from? Uh, That's, you know, we don't do a lot of blood sprinkling in our culture anymore. But in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, sprinkling of blood was one of the ways that you made a covenant. And actually it comes from Exodus 24. We think maybe Peter is referring to Exodus 24 here. When Moses went up, he got the law from God. He brought it down to the people. And they said, yes, we want to obey and follow God. So they made an altar. They took some of the blood and put it on the altar. And they took some of it and sprinkled the people saying that the covenant had been made, the promise had been made. And so I think Peter is picking up that image here and helping the Christians of Asia Minor realize that Jesus has made a new covenant with them. Saying that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and because of his blood we have a new covenant. And then finally he says, grace and peace to you. <laughs> so this, this is the, the part is like, if we were to write it today, we'd say, to God's elect, grace and peace To you. (laughs) In abundance. But Peter writes all these other things explaining the people that he's writing to. Okay. So, we have this introduction to the part of the letter. And now it comes to the closing. We want to understand, why did Peter write this letter? The closing gives us insight exactly as to why Peter wrote it. Okay. So, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. This is from the close of the letter. Silas, with the help of him. Uh, We, some people, like, uh, there was a really popular time about 150 to 200 years ago where it really became really popular to question everything about the Bible. Uh, And lots of people had questions, you know, did Peter, you know, did Peter even write this? Or who, what do they mean by Peter? Did somebody just use Peter's name and write the letter so it would have some sort of credentials with churches? I I don't think so. But here's one of the things. He says that, um, you know, one of the questions people had was how does a fisherman... And the assumption they had back a hundred years ago, this fisherman, probably illiterate, you know, barely spoke his own language. How is he going to learn Greek and write this fancy Greek letter? Well, that's a huge assumption that, one, people can't learn, which uh, we know that people grow uh, throughout their lives and gain abilities in languages. Um, But not only that, but it's also as popular in that day to have someone write for you. Or to have someone help you. So you would say, you'd be thinking and talking and having an assistant, especially if you were a faithful man, like a wise leader in a church, to have someone who was just writing for you, taking down what you were saying. So I wonder if that's what he means. It says, with the help of Silas, did Silas help Peter write this? Or does uh, Silas merely write down what Peter was saying? Or does he simply mean that uh, Silas is the one who delivered this letter? Silas is the one who traveled from Rome to Asia Minor to deliver these letters all around that region, which wouldn't have been easy. It would have taken probably a few months, maybe a year or two, to deliver it around. With the help of Silas, this faithful brother. Okay, then he says to and I'm just going to talk a bit just here about the people. The next one was she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Not sure what they mean by Babylon. Probably not literally Babylon, probably Rome uh, and who she is. We don't know. Maybe somebody that, uh, obviously someone at the church in Asia Minor knew. Um, Maybe someone from the church where they came from or someone who had been uh, part of the church there. And he says, and so does my son Mark. And most uh, church uh, scholars think this is referring to Mark. Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, who sat with Peter and took down everything Peter'd remember about Jesus and wrote the Gospel. And then he says, greet, oh, sorry, uh, greet one another with a kiss of love. You guys can just keep handshaking. That's fine. You don't have to kiss each other. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. But I wanted to focus on this part right here. This is where Peter gives us a clue as to why he wrote this letter. He says, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Peter is writing to encourage Encourage Christians to live good, God-honoring lives in a culture where people don't like it. To examine just how much we should look like the people around us. I know it's a natural thing for us to want to fit in, but sometimes, actually not even sometimes, if we follow Jesus, we won't. We won't fit in. For us to expect rejection from a world around us that doesn't want to be told what to do. We live in a world that wants to make its own decisions about whatever it likes. And yet we come and we say, no, actually God has given us a way to live and we believe it because of Jesus, because he died and rose again. Peter is encouraging this church, rather than cut corners or sell out to make life easier, he's saying it's better to suffer than to sin. Even though we may think, like maybe we can just acquiesce on this little detail or this thing or this big issue, Peter saying it's better to suffer than to sin. He's saying keep trusting God, testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. We've covered a ton of ground this morning. And this is just kind of the basic, the beginning work of understanding who Peter, you know, some about him, remembering some of that, but also who he's writing to and what it would have been like to hear this letter. Over the next few weeks as we unpack the letter, as we unpack this teaching and how we follow Jesus when it's not easy, it's going to be good. But as I hear this morning, I hear that, you know, following Jesus is not always easy, especially in a culture around us that doesn't like us, that doesn't like the teaching of Jesus. Christianity used to be the center of North American society. It's not anymore, especially here in the Kootenays. We are on the margin because we follow Jesus. But I want to encourage you that you're not doing something wrong. You know, some people, some Christians teach, you know, if you're suffering, you don't have enough faith. Or if you're suffering, then you're not believing enough. And as I read Peter, he's saying, no, that suffering is a natural part of following Jesus in a culture where people don't like it. But then he says that you, regardless of how the rest of the world teaches, or how the rest of the world treats you, you are chosen. You are chosen foreigners, exiled in a foreign land. So when you experience difficulty because you follow Jesus, ridicule, Disbelief, criticism, don't be surprised, and don't think you're doing something wrong. In fact, it might actually mean you're actually following Jesus faithfully. And so this morning I hear Jesus, I hear Peter speaking to us, not only to the to the Asian church that he wrote two thousand years ago, but to us here, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, stand fast, keep following Jesus. And if you want to do, okay, Jason, how do I respond to this? What's one thing that we can do? I want you guys to read the letter of 1 Peter this week. If you can, sit down, read it all at once, okay? It's maybe 20, maybe 30 minutes. If you have to break it up, that's fine, but read the letter of 1 Peter this week. Uh, next week we have the Opus here, but I can't wait. In two weeks we'll get back together again and start with the first part of 1 Peter. I know we live in a difficult community here. It's not always easy to follow Jesus here or to say what Jesus has taught us about life and our culture. But I want to encourage you, this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Amen.